Inside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn. New Year's Eve. It's a New Year's Eve party going on here. Uh, I guess the unofficial dual headquarters of Caught Offside, Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, we are nearly done with this wretched year. Uh, Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year to you, too, to everybody listening. I'm glad that you said that because that's one thing that um, I've been thinking about is this. uh, I feel like this national, international obsession with the year 2020 and how much we've all just kind of grown to hate it. Uh, but like, I also feel like we can't, we can't be so obsessed with that, with that number being the enemy that it's like, we're all going to wake up tomorrow and like, it's going to be, Things are gonna be better, right? <laughs> like it, it's kind of a subjective, arbitrary thing that we've all decided to hate here. Um, so, oh yeah. It's, 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 it's the, it's the calendar. It, it right. is the changing of a page. You're exactly. going to wake up tomorrow you're still going to be the same person you were. The world is not quite over COVID yet, but we've decided because of human beings and our arbitrary dates that this is the end of it and things will be better tomorrow. But I'll tell you what, this podcast is going to be better than any other podcast we've done this Christmas season. It's, it's the only way to celebrate New Year's Eve, a New Year's Eve party. You, me, alone together in a bunker as we cower in fear from the world around us as it continues to hurtle into oblivion. What an upbeat and happy New Year's party this is. Well, but tell the truth, Andrew. So you, you were a very, very concerned teenager around the era of Y2K, the changing of the millennium. So you, for a project in school, constructed your own bunker um, because you are worried generally about the world and, and the state of things. And, and that's where we find ourselves. In, in yeah, little, little known fact, I actually haven't left it since. I've been in since 2000, oh, waiting boy. for the right time to emerge. I briefly popped my head out in April of this year, but realized quickly that was a mistake. Um, you know, one thing that is funny about New Year's, and I promise we've got a lot of soccer to discuss. Well, the festive period, there's a lot of games happening. But more importantly than that, we're going to do our year-end retrospective. We've got 10 questions um, to kind of parse through to look back on the uh, the past year. And everything that's gone on, it was a massive undertaking to do that. This year has been utterly bonkers, but it was actually more fun to look back on than what I was uh, expecting. So we've got all that coming up. And the year-end retrospective will be the second half of the pod. And I encourage all of you to stay tuned for that because I think it's actually – I think it will actually be enjoyable uh, to listen back through um, some of our memories of this year. But one thing – one final note on New Year's Eve. I wonder if you feel like this too. It always bothered me – when like in college or more so out of college and you're like your early twenties, mid twenties. And, um, there would be some people who would be so uppity about new year's Eve. Oh, whatever, man. New year's Eve is amateur hour. Like the, whatever, not a big deal. Like, I don't know. I, I always, I always thought new year's Eve was a, a very fun night when like everybody was just on board to just like go nuts. I, 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 cause you, you could go either way on this. I'm curious sure. where you fall. Oh, when I was younger, I was, I was like you, I was like, come on, it's new year's Eve. We're going to go and do this and make these grand plans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ultimately I, at the end of the night, I was always alone. Um, and I was always, you know, or not alone. I was in various states of inebriation, but generally alone. It was cold. It still felt like December. It still felt like the last year. 
And um, now over the last decade, I've gone for much calmer, spend time with your family. I, I think that's that's probably uh, no. beca- because I'm away from home. And when I do get home, I want to spend time with my family. But um, I think a good low-key party with a select few friends. I am not an events guy on New Year's Eve. That They don't work. So that I, I guess it depends what you consider to be an event because I – Agree wholeheartedly. First of all, it's different now than when what I'm talking about in our 20s. Now we're in our mid 30s, and like mm. I don't know, things are just like different. Um, but like I agree with you in that I I don't think I ever once went to a bar on New Year's Eve. Only house parties or apartment parties. Oh well, then you have never been. You've never seen the full horror of events on New Year's Eve. I, I've been to like parties nightclub stuff dreadful just dreadful don't do it don't ever do it to yourself yeah see that i got no interest in but i think a, a, a nice solid house party with good friends on new year's eve like for people who want to call that amateur hour, you know what uh, the words i can't use go go somewhere that's as close as I can <laughs> no, uh, my final final story about when i was younger i was big into into dance music and, and european house music and i used to see cream abitha in liverpool would um this massive club, I would watch it the next day. I would see their their celebrations think, oh, wow, that's amazing. I wish I was there with all those sexy, beautiful people dancing to, you know, whatever DJ was there. No. Now that I'm older, I realize, no. No, thank you. Yeah. I just yeah. want to be with people I can trust. Solid people. We'll have a drink. We'll have a laugh. We'll play some music, sing some rebel songs. Done. I can't picture you fitting in in that kind of setting, talking to those kinds of oh, people. I, with I, like- you the see, I saw thumping and you trying to shout over, hey, so I'm JJ. You ever heard of Charles Reap? <laughs> Good music, huh? What's your thoughts on Jurgen Klopp's gang impressing? Yeah, I thought Jack Charlton invented it. Get away from me, Lizard. No, um, I had I had pretensions when I was younger about, um, well, anyone who listens to this podcast realizes I still have pretensions, but um, about who, about, you know, the kind of things I enjoyed. I think I forced myself to enjoy a lot of stuff when I was younger. But anyways, on with the God, football. How the years have changed you. <laughs> now I, like now I forced myself to do podcasts with you, Buster. On with the football, like you said. Let's get into it now. Like I said, our year-end retrospective coming up in a few minutes. But first, it's been a, a very, very busy few days, even by busy few days standards. Uh, let's start with, I guess, the team that I think right now is probably the most interesting team in the league, even if they're not coming off of the most interesting game. Uh, and that is Manchester United who have made this sudden push up near the top of the table. And I don't care what Ole wants to say or what players within United want to say. They say what they have to say, what they think is the right things to say. And that's probably true, but they can say what they want about, no, no title race. We're not looking at the table. Well, yes, there is. And it's just a matter of whether or not they stay in it. Uh, But like right now, sure. Why not call this a title race? To me, it absolutely is. Look, look, you can... I think the great thing about the great argument about United is is points on the board versus performances that you've watched with your eyes. I mean, that was a drab and dreadful game against Wolves the other night, but they got three points. They are within touching distance of Liverpool who dropped points at Newcastle. And whether you think it's Liverpool's inability to build a proper cushion between them and the rest of the teams with the, the draw at West Brom, or the draw at Anfield against West Brom and then the draw at Newcastle, whether you think it's because of Liverpool's um, vulnerabilities this season or whether you think it's because United are actually clicking under Ole, it doesn't matter. The points don't lie. 
they're in a race. Right now, they're in a race. Now, Ole doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that because he knows the up and down nature of this side, the boom bust nature of United. So he doesn't want to engage in that kind of thing. That's why he said, "Oh, you can't have a tight race after after 15 games." And and there probably yeah, I is. Have the, I have the exact quote here. He says, uh, "There's no title race after 15 games. You can lose the chance of being in a race in the first 10 games. Of course you can, but play another 15, get to 30 games, and maybe we can start talking about a title race." That's the uh, again, subtle, like, that's the right, lowering like, of expectations. And and like we said, he has to do that. The players have to do that because you know they're preaching their own messages within the locker room that you know that that works for them. But like for for fans, for what we do, why would we not want this to be fun? Like we want there to be a title race. It makes the season more fun. So I think people who are shying away from from wanting to call it that, I, I don't know. I think you can view it however you want. But right now, Manchester United is right there with Liverpool with a game at hand. Um, and they play each other in a couple of weeks, which should be a huge event. I'm, I'm like already pre-excited for that game. Yeah, and um, and I think it's if you're the neutral um, and if you're a United fan, uh, those two groupings are delighted that we're going to go and have an important game in January at the top of the table where Liverpool aren't running away with it like last season. It's, it's good. And one random question for you, and I'm kind of springing this on you without any notice. I apologize, but just like this isn't breaking new ground, but just watching him even more so recently. In the year 2020, was there any more important signing than Bruno Fernandes to Manchester United? No, there wasn't. I don't think so. No, he's um, he's so creative, Andrew. <laughs> he, he lifts that team. You have to wonder, if United had botched this signing like they've botched so many over the last few years, where would they be right now? I know. Shuddering thought if you're a United fan. But reassuring as well, they got him. He's been brilliant despite the reservations of people like me who looked at his stats looked at his um, failed time in uh, Italy or Spain, I can't remember which, and um, and didn't know enough about him. And uh, he's he's been he's been amazing for United, no question. Yeah. And it just goes to show also that important signings can be made in January, which is kind of a uh, a tease for what's to come in the uh, in the coming weeks here. Sometimes yeah. I feel like January is sort of that like throwaway window where you just score to make you make tweaks and things like that, but I mean, we just said, we just identified the most important signing of the year happened last January. So Correct. And also another thing that comes from it, career arcs are not linear. They are curvy, they're bumpy, they're up and they're down, and, and you can still be an effective footballer at a top-level club after 25 years of age. Yep. Uh, let's see. So that's Manchester United. Um, we move from the near the top of the table now to near the bottom, where we don't, we don't do a ton of West Brom talk on this podcast. It's one of our, it's one of our flaws. Yeah. Um, but with Big Sam now in the saddle there, uh, the expectation, of course, is that they will stay up. And we've seen, we've seen all, all colors of that spectrum so far in the early going of his tenure there with a, you know, a very Sam-like performance against Liverpool. And then this, uh, West Brom getting absolutely hammered yeah. by Leeds United, 5-0, 4-0 down at the half. Uh, I guess, you know, and Big Sam says he's he is now understanding just, you know, the challenge that lie ahead of them. This is not a good team. Uh, I think everybody knows that. But he, by his own doing and his own hard work, Big Sam has set an expectation for himself that he can take not a good team and keep them up. Um, and there is still time for that to happen. But West Brom, I think even with the draw at Liverpool, it's it's dire. I think you'd have to say after what happened against Leeds. It is dire, and um, I'd like to give Leeds credit because Leeds will only play the one way against everyone. They'll ship six at Old Trafford. They'll score 
what, four in the first half against against West Brom. They swarmed them. They scored some brilliant goals. Um, Rafinha's goal in particular. Jack Harrison again. How good is he looking right now? Um, but but um, the pragmatic approach of West Brom, uh, you know, we hailed what, what Big Sam did at Anfield. But let's not forget that Slavin Bilic took this same group of players to the Etihad and did the exact same thing. So I think... Um, the Big Sam bounce, we've yet to see it because that point at, at Liverpool was was very, very good. But to follow it up with such a, a disconcerting result against against Leeds, a Leeds side, by the way, that, that Sean Dyche is Burnley, who play a more similar game to Sam Allardyce and West Brom. I mean, Sean Dyche put up a much better showing than that. Uh, and his Burnley side did and were quite unlucky not to get at least a share of the points in that game. But that aside, um, he's got a mammoth task, and I, I'm not—I'm not actually sure this time we see Big Sam um, do what Big Sam usually does. Yeah, the other side of this, of course, like you mentioned, was Leeds and how impressive they were. Um, I, I guess I would say a couple things about that because I did see look this—the way they're playing this season—you you have to admire it, you have to enjoy it. There, even when they lose, like the four-three on opening day against Liverpool, you know, even on those days they're still fun. Uh, to watch, you know, their their games in many ways are are must see TV as much as any newly promoted side can be. Uh, but by the same token, I also felt like there was a lot of um, like chest pounding and spiking of the ball after this performance from you know people on Twitter, uh, from the Leeds Twitter account itself, perhaps. And, and there was yeah. part of me that just wanted to be like, like a little bit of you know, stay classy, Leeds. Like, okay, you're having a very good season so far, but this was like you, you finished 10 points above West Brom in the championship last season. And yeah, you guys have kicked on, but West Brom still look like a championship team. So right. if there's going to be a game where you're going to, where you're going to spike the ball afterwards and everyone's going to take this victory lap. Oh, look, Leeds can play this style. All those people who said they needed to be more pragmatic. What are you saying now? Like, okay. I didn't hear those people saying those kinds of things after their back to back four, one defeats against palace and Leicester city. Like this is, this is a bad West Brom team that just changed managers. That's probably changing the way they play. They're going to have these clunkers, especially, Especially against teams that like to go forward the way that Leeds do. So again, like all credit to Leeds. They're they're doing all the right things this season and they really have been a joy. And and like the Premier League right now is better off with them in it because not because of Leeds and the history, but because of honestly, like they're fun uh in the way they're playing. But I don't know, just like some of some of what went on after hammering West Brom. I was like, everyone relax. Disgraceful, Andrew. And also it's it's a, a female pundit making a point, right? A point actually that some ex-Leeds United players have made over the past few months and even in, over the past few days. But they they seize upon that particular video, which was tweeted out by Punjabi Whites, which is a Leeds United supporters club, uh, supporters group on Twitter. And it's just so petty. Andrew, uh, I'm going to ask you a question now. Off the top of your head, can you remember a more fated, vaunted, talked up or praised newly promoted side other than Leeds United in the past five, six years? Well, I mean, I guess like Villa coming back or Newcastle. Right, like teams that are Premier League mainstays that kind of like went up and down. But, but, but no, it's, for the way they play. And, uh, no, I would. This is a weird one. You may disagree. I would have to go all the way back to like the Charlie Adam Blackpool side. Yeah. And they went right back down. Right. But, but I remember like they they'd lose games, you know, four three, four two, and like people thought, oh, they're so fun. It's a shame they're going back down. But they couldn't defend. They they'd go forward and score. Right. This is this leads to me is like a way better version 
maybe of that. I, I way better, I I think. But why are why are they so sensitive to any little bit of criticism? And I say when I say they, I talk about their social media account. And unfortunately, it was retweeted and backed by the owner Andrea Radranzani, I, I, who I thought would be. I mean, Leeds, Karen Carney got so much abuse that they had to issue a statement. Uh, you know, they didn't remove the video. Um, but but they issued a statement saying that they they don't stand behind anybody. Like, what did they expect except a Twitter pylon? You've got to realize they've got millions of followers. They've got more followers than viewers of her analysis on Amazon Prime in the UK. You know, that is great responsibility. And also leads are, a, I would say, a, f- a fine and storied institution. Like you said, you have to be classier than that. Did I agree with what Car- Karen Carney said? No. I didn't. Did, did Do I think she's entitled to that opinion? Of course she's entitled to it. And she's entitled to say it. And by the way, it's not the dumbest thing I've heard said. No. Funded. Remember remember our, our dear old friend Danny Mills last season who started, he was asked to preview Sheffield United and he talked about them being a long ball team and how they'd struggle. They fin- what, what, did they finish top half? Come on. So, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that what's the big deal? If you, if you make a, a, a stupid comment, you should be slated for it. Well, there's a difference between slated and abused, all right? And it's certainly those leading the pylon or the attack should not be the official account representing the club. Shouldn't happen. Yeah, it was not a good look. Distasteful. Yeah. Now, having said all those things about Leeds, I do want to at least harp on some of the positives here. Um, They've now won seven of their 16 games in the Premier League this season. This is from Opta. Only six newly promoted teams in the competition's history have picked up more victories at this stage of a season. Um, They've also now scored 30 goals in the Premier League this season. The only newly promoted team in the competition's history to have netted more after their first 16 games. Any idea? The only newly promoted site have netted more. More than 30 at this 16 games into a season. Ooh. I'll tell you. Go on, tell me. It was uh, Newcastle back in 93-94. They had 31. Oh, wow. We have to go back that far. Yeah. So, they, like, it's not a small thing that they're achieving. I guess, like I said, just to, to repeat it and then we'll move on, it's just like West Brom, you know? like Ah, uh, look. Do, do this. I feel like, like do that after a different game. I just, I don't know. Something about I, that. I was like, relax, everybody. I, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. And and also as well, you know, I mean, pick pick your battles. You know, it's like, right, right. There's no their Leeds Leeds United's account has been kind of has been funny in the last few years, but they're not, you know, they're not footy accumulators or one of these banter accounts. You know, they are the account of Leeds United Football Club, and that means something. And so you should act appropriately. But um, watching Leeds is just a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And when you think how some, and I'm not going to name any names, how some more, um, how shall we say, moneyed clubs have decided to go about playing their football this season. And you look at what Leeds do, which is just this joyous abandon. That's why they're box office. That's why we enjoy them. One of those clubs, which I'm I'm assuming <laughs> one of the clubs that you are deciding to remain nameless plays Leeds this weekend. Uh, that will be interesting. It will indeed be interesting, Andrew. How do you know I'm referring to them, though? <laughs> I haven't said anything. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what you're talking about? Uh, let's see. Let's. I also want to talk about a game that didn't happen, JJ, or even a couple games that didn't happen. The the, the situation right now, obviously globally, but specifically in in Great Britain with regards to the coronavirus, is uh, it's getting worse. Um, yes. 
you know, the, the tier system, you know, one week we see fans in the stands in North London for the North London Derby. And then a week later that's done. Um, and that is kind of now the growing trend around England, uh, where what we thought was encouraging signs of fans being let back in. Now we're going in reverse. Um, and this is now culminated with a, a bit of an increase in postponed matches. The first of which was Manchester city and Everton from earlier in the week. Now, I'm curious where you stand on this. You and I actually, we haven't really texted or talked about this beforehand. Um, I'm still a little bit confused as to why this match was called off. Now, as of yesterday, um, Everton still had not heard from the league as to why the match was canceled. The the, the supposed rule is that you're supposed to have uh, 14 players available to you, which we believe City had, Mm. um, and yet the match was still postponed. Now, Having said that, it is important to point out that that is not necessarily a rule. I feel like it's being treated that way, but it's not necessarily like a law that if you have 14 players available, you play. It's a guideline, Mm -hmm. uh, but the league still does technically handle these matters on a case-by-case basis. So it is important to know that. So I would say this. um, I understand Everton's confusion over why this happened. but and, and I do think they are owed an explanation, and it's puzzling to me that they haven't yes. received one. But like, given the fact that the turnaround between games was so short, they only had and they had just received a number of new additional positive cases within the city, uh, within the city Manchester City Club Football Club. Like, I understand there being some hesitancy to go forward with that match. There's also this new strain. Like not to go too deep, yeah. but like there's this new strain of coronavirus, which is thought to be more contagious, which is going through Britain right now. Um, so I, I can see the desire for common sense to kind of overrule this. Well, do you or do you not have 14 players available? You do. Then we play like I could understand somebody being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just like pump the brakes here for a sec. They could have more positive cases that haven't emerged yet. We've only just concluded the latest round of testing. Maybe let's just like postpone this match and, and err on the side of caution. I think that that I think that that is probably in the end the right way to have played it, even if it seemed like it kind of was done in a, a clunky manner. Yeah, and I, I I I'm not fully sure I understand what happened there either, but I do think with the new strain. Um, of 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 COVID nineteen that is very even more communicable than the other one has is a factor in this. Also, remember what happened at Newcastle where they basically shut the club down for ten days and closed the training ground. And I I, I think that it's not okay in the COVID era to say, well, we have X amount of players that are fit and okay to go. Well, we don't know. They may they may be infected and just haven't showed signs yet. They may be asymptomatic. They may pass it on. So. I think caution rules in this area, but the the least Everton can expect is is a proper fulsome explanation of why this happened. Now, the bigger picture here, Andrew, is to move it on a little bit, is that there's League One and League Two games, multiple games being shut down because of COVID, um, and the the bubbles football and protections football thought it had worked out, clearly are falling apart. In terms of the Premier League, there's a few people. Dale Johnson of ESPN uh, tweeted this out. There's probably very little rig- wiggle room to reschedule any more games than have been cancelled t- up to this point. Now, this is a, a situation in flux, but if you look at the calendar, it's it's very, very tight. Lots of things could potentially crash into the Euros, which we're supposed to have this summer. Um, big Sam Allardyce has called for a circuit breaker, whatever that means, which means, I guess, a break to try and and and... and 
I'll create a bulwark against any more COVID te- uh, spreads, but a couple of people, including Gary Neville, have pointed out why that might not work very well mid-season. Um, also, by the way, the optic of a guy who literally just joined being the one to say that, something about that feels a little bit weird to me. Like a guy who would, again, I'm not questioning his motives. Like no. there's a lot, he's not the only person that thinks that that would be a safe play here, but like he just joined West Brom a, well, like a week ago. He well, can he said, see how much work needs to be done. Like if any team right now could benefit from a break where they could try to like acclimate to a new manager, it would probably be them. So like, again, I'm not saying that that's why he wants this, but it just doesn't look right to me that like this guy who was just hired as the one calling for the break. Yeah, Big Sam's blackboard. He would just write six, four, zero on it <laughs> and walk away. Uh, you're right, but he he mentioned he's 66. He's worried about the disease because he's 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 closer to that danger age with COVID. Um, although you wouldn't know it the way he the way he wore his mask on live TV at Anfield the other night around his chin. Yeah, as he chewed furiously. I mean, if South Park refers to that as the chin diaper. <laughs> You're better off not wearing it than to show that to the public as a means of wearing it. But but whatever. Let's move on. Uh, let's move on to Arsenal, who, boy, the difference a week can make. Um, two wins now on the bounce, as they say, for Mikel Arteta. Uh, I can't think of a team, uh, with the possible exception of West Brom or Sheffield United, that needed it more than this Arsenal side. Um, I, I guess... It's still early. It's only two games. It's a lot to say that, okay, the turnaround is upon us. Um, I don't know that we can say that yet. What we can say, I think, is that the infusion of young players into the 11 has made a difference, whether that is long-term or whether that's just in the immediacy when they so desperately needed it. Again, that remains to be seen, but like, you know, I don't think I don't think you can dispute that. And Bukayo Saka has been in the lineup for much of the season, but boy, has he looked good recently. Um, and you know, I would say too, like he didn't start the, uh, the second game, um, against Brighton, but these last two games, Alexander Lacazette has been, I think, very important for Arsenal. You still not really seeing much from Obama Yang who didn't play in the three, one, uh, and missed a chance in the one nil victory over Brighton, um, on a great save from the keeper. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's Arteta. I saw him talking about like trying to find the right blend of playing all these new young players that are clearly like they're full of energy, exuberance. They're they're clearly making a difference, but trying to blend them in with some more established veterans. Arsenal are going to look different after January. Already, we're hearing about Kolasinac going out on loan back to Schalke, um, and I think that could be the first of of several similar moves with veteran players who have kind of seen themselves fall out of the loop as these young players have emerged. Yeah, I, I think if you look at the Chelsea game, I thought they got their tactics uh, perfectly right. I thought they overloaded Chelsea's fullbacks, made it very difficult um, for Chelsea to, to to cope with them. And it was a good win, very good win. Although, I mean, Chelsea were well off it. More of that anon. Um, the second game, the first half of the Brighton game, Andrew, it would be very hard to make a case that Arsenal were in the middle of a bounce back you know that Arsenal were back that was a really poor first half but they got the win in the end and you're right it's about getting guys like Emile Smith-Rowe and and Zaka more involved and and also blending them in with the experience that they have Um, Martinelli as well I think if he can stay fit we saw 
mainly in cup games, league cup games, as I recall, how good he was on, under Unai Emery. Arteta didn't fancy him and he was kind of forced into playing him over the last few weeks. And I think he's discovered that there's there's a lot more to this guy and, and that he could become a part of Arsenal going forward. It's too early to say this is a club in flux and in change and a manager trying to get his own players in with some difficulties getting other players out, which which caused stagnation. So, um, yeah, much better. Two wins on the bounce, huge. And Arsenal heading in the direction they should be for a club their size. Yeah. Also, one quick shout out to another name that I think should be mentioned. Kieran Tierney has been really good yeah. for them at fullback. Uh, getting forward and, and helping to really create part of the attack. I think he's been his emergence this season has also proven to be important. So, yeah, we don't know. We'll see. Like, we'll see where they go from here. I don't know that it. I'm sure Arsenal fans want this to be the beginning of of their resurgence to at least back to mid table, right? Um, but we'll see. It's we don't know. They're weird. We don't. We just don't know with them. And then the team that you were just talking about, Chelsea, um, they're headed in that kind of negative direction. I guess that's that's kind of becoming a theme of this season. Uh, like even Manchester United, who are up to second in the table, like every club, there, there's just. With the possible exception, I guess, of Liverpool, who even they have had a couple moments like the Aston Villa game where you're like, hmm, that was weird. Like every no club is so great this year that they're just not going to have these negative spells. No. Arsenal's lasted for a while. Um, Tottenham, who we'll briefly talk about in a sec, are, are in one right now. Chelsea are clearly in one right now. It's it's kind of the nature of this league. Yes. Um, I, th- I think the thing that that constantly... The difference, I think, is that if you look at, uh, I mean, Spurs aside, Spurs definitely strengthened. I think if you look at the extent to which Chelsea strengthened and the fact that they don't seem any closer to figuring out their best 11, their best formation, uh, players who look like they were coming into form, like Timo Werner, have fallen off the map. Um, I I think that's the reason why there's kind of a spotlight more on Chelsea and also their manager as well. Um, Losing to that, to losing to that Arsenal team in that fashion was bad, and um, and the manager did what he usually does. He 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 went after his his players, um, only took the modicum of responsibility himself. And, and I don't I don't think Frank Lampard is to blame entirely for that performance at Arsenal. Uh, he was more pleased with the performance against Aston Villa. I thought they were better against Villa, but still fell away in the second half. And um, and defensively, they were caught out pretty badly although there was maybe a foul on Christensen in the build-up, but I thought they were caught out pretty badly. Um, there's a couple of things happening. If, if you are going to be critical of Lampard, you know, I, the forward players, even Christian Pulisic, don't seem to be entirely sure what they're doing, but it is clear that Giroud should start. Giroud, Pulisic and, and Ben Chilwell in the first half against Villa, they're linking up on that left-hand side was the most cohesive play I've seen from Chelsea in a while and suggested to me that all three obviously should start, but Giroud in particular needs to start. Um, when Werner came in, he still looked lost. He doesn't know what to do with Havertz. Um, he really doesn't. And Edward Mendy, the goalkeeper, has shown shown him to, shown himself to be um, not as solid as he started out the season. Um, although... Again, I, I still think he is, is quite an upgrade on, on where Kepa was at. There's, there's, there is problems there. And, um, and Frank Lampard can deny as much as he wants that he, he, you know, he never wants to talk about how good his squad is, but his squad is one of the strongest in Europe. It just is. The talent they have. I think they are missing um, Zayish. Uh, or, excuse me. 
we've been told Ziesh, how to right? pronounce it Ziesh, mm-hmm. um quite a bit um look i don't think it's all all his own fault i think he's been given a lot of players and it is quite difficult to find the right combinations i saw enough though from the starting 11 in that first half against aston villa to say that i know who he should be starting and Giroud, i know he was really only a make weight signing he wasn't a guy who was going to expected to lead the line for for years to come for Chelsea especially not when you bought the best striker in Europe in Timo Werner but right now Pulisic uh, Chilwell and Giroud have this little thing going on down the left and it's enough to unlock I'd say a lot of teams and he should stick with that yeah two things easy there with best striker in Europe with Werner he's he's really good easy Ooh, I look at his figures from our. Uh, I the think Robert Lewandowski record. would like to have a word with. You. Oh, okay, all right, okay. Uh, well, well, best young striker. How about that? Okay, fair enough. And young then striker. Uh, the other one you mentioned, Edward Mendy. I wanted to ask you. So uh, I don't know if this will be under any kind of consideration for goal of the season. It probably won't. But I would say personally, uh, Bukayo Saka's goal against uh, Chelsea is maybe it's one of my favorite goals of the season so far, and I'm wondering. How much of that is just pure awareness, class, skill from Saka, and how much of that is Mendy being caught out of position? Um, I like. I had an argument, not an argument, a debate with my brother-in-law whether whether he meant that or not. He, um, he definitely meant it. I don't think there's he, anyone quite close enough to it where you could say he was trying to get it to that guy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I think Mendy doesn't really move his feet at all. Andrew, honestly, even if Mendy was further across, uh, Zach has put it in a, in a, a spot in the goal. The keeper's not getting there. It's just not getting there. Um, I'm more concerned about Mendy coming for crosses, um, things like that. He's been a bit rash of late. Um, I can't remember who was it he gave the penalty away against where he just comes flying out and you're just like, just stay at home. There's no need for you to come out there. Um, and that may, be, that may be because he's not entirely um, comfortable with what he's seeing in front of him. But um, yeah, do you know what? That was just a brilliant goal and we shouldn't overanalyze it. Yeah. Uh, Tottenham, just a quick note on them. It's funny. I said to you before the podcast, we were kind of like going through some of the things we were going to mention. And I was like, I said to you about Tottenham. I was like, I don't know how much I want to continue saying about them. I feel like I'm being repetitive. And then you, you quickly corrected me and said, no, 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 you're not being repetitive. They are. And like, it, it, you're right. Like it dawned on me. You're right. And there, there truly are stats to back that up. Um, like it, it's kind of a unique sort of frustration that I feel with them right now because uh, they've dropped nine points this season from, from conceding goals in the final ten minutes of a game. Hmm. Like this is this is now kind of who they are. It's not that, accidental. It's a not a. That, it's that not can unlo- be gotten too late, right? Um, but the thing is, like, I find them almost hard to analyze because. So what do you say about a team that has done enough to win for 85 minutes? Like, okay, a, a game is 90, or in certain cases, like against Newcastle, you know, 95, I think, when the Callum Wilson penalty was converted. Like, a game is 90 minutes, so you, you can't only do enough to win for 85. But by the same token, like, I feel like nine times out of 10, if you do enough to win for 85, you've, you're going to win. But well, with them, again, that's, that's proving not to be the case. So I again, don't know what, what to say about that. Again, Andrew, I, 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 I'm not repeating myself here. I really want to get down into the bunker for the party, for the retrospective. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be brief here. They're not doing enough to win. They're just not. You want, you want to see their XG for the minutes after they scored that first goal against Wolves? Like 0.3 of a goal. 
Like, that's not good enough. If you go 1-0 up with a good move, with a good goal, with the way Ndombele is playing, chase the game. Go after a second and a third. Chase it. What are you doing sitting back? You're leaving yourself a hostage, hostage to fortune every single time. I know. I'm just saying, like, if when you when you continue, like, if you're running a race, if, like, you continue to lead this race with, like, the finish line just, you know, 30 feet away, like, that that's what they're doing. It's it's just this incredible frustration to think, like, like you continue to not be able to win that race. Right. Um, and I don't, like, they've conceded, I believe, the most, they've only conceded three goals from open play this season. So it does tell you that, like, the main structure of what they do in defense, like, it works. It's worked every game. They the are problem defending. is they're, they're a disaster defensively, especially late in games, on set pieces. It's killing them. Uh, they've conceded, I think, the most goals. They're among the worst teams in the league in conceding goals from set pieces, penalties, and own goals. And it's just like those are three things where I'm kind of like, well, what, what do you – what do you do about those things? Like Andrew, I watched that whole entire Wolves Tottenham game. I've watched a lot of Tottenham this season and it's been tough the last few weeks to try and, you know, just G yourself up. Okay, Tottenham are playing, Tottenham are playing. I gotta watch them. Um Andrew, if they had got a second goal, if they had went after a second goal in that first half where they where they just came flying out of the gates, Wolves would not have scored two. Would not have done it. I guess that's the, I, game one. that's the game one. Honestly, they, they allowed Wolves back into it. They allowed shots from Neto. They allowed crosses to come in and eventually the dam burst. But I'm repeating myself now and I really, really don't want to do that. One other note from, uh, I guess, semi-Tottenham related. Um, mm. uh, Thomas Tuchel is out at PSG and Mauricio Pochettino is going to be replacing him. And so I saw what you posted on Twitter. Um, yeah. Again, the uh, JJ's thoughts from the official show account, which I'm, <sighs> I'm, I'm, I guess, falsely under the impression represents both of us, but no, no, it it really doesn't. Uh, I think it's you got to log in, buddy. You got to log in more. The, no the password is, has been changed. I'm not. It's like <laughs> a, you've taken the keys away from me in my own home. I I'm sleeping outside with the garbage and the raccoons. Um, but so I, I know how you feel about Pochettino going to PSG. And it, I mean, I, I won't put words in your mouth. What what was it you said about it? Uh, my my belief is it's it's a strange fit. Um, and, and again, straight away, Twitter does what Twitter does. Uh, they jump in and say, strange fit. He played for them. The man actually played for PSG. Like, yeah. Do you know what? That's like um, that's like Henry Ford, reviving Henry Ford and asking him to design a new Ford card in 2020. Like when everything's changed just because he invented the first one. Like th- there's different time periods. Like he played for two seasons. He was extremely well uh, admired by Parisians. He loved Paris. And then he moved on. You know, the club is not the same club that it was in 03, 04. You can, you can, they're not comparable. He, I don't think he won a league on title as a player for PSG, right? I think, I think they won a Coupe de France. They won a Coupe de France, and I think they may have won the last Intertoto Cup or yes. whatever it was. Right. So, so like, that wouldn't be acceptable now. He's, all, he's going into the mega super club of world football, a team that's just been in its first Champions League final. He's coming in to manage Neymar, Kylian Mbappe, um, like the, the well, what rain- is it you're implying that he's not cut out to handle that kind of team? No, I'm just saying first, the first point is 
the fact that he played um, the, the fact that he played for Paris is only useful that the fan base will really take him to their hearts that's the only use it has it has nothing to do with what he's stepping into right now you know the way everyone talks about the, the simple pundit phrase when someone returns to a club they play that oh well he knows the club in it he just knows the club he's in the DNA no that doesn't count because it's a totally different team right now um, and totally different uh, structure. And the second point is, I think he is the best manager available. So PSG should go and get him for sure. Right. But if you look what he's done in his managerial career at Southampton and at Tottenham, those were fixer upper jobs. Those were things where he brought clubs to a certain level, right? Paris are already at that level and he's going to go in there and He's built teams, Andrew. Now he's going to have to deal with individuals, with Neymar and this crazy New Year's Eve party in Brazil he's supposed to be planning. You know, he's going to have to go in and deal with Kylian Mbappe, who seems as if he wants away. You know, he's got all these egos and different things to try and, and balance. And it's a totally different job to Tottenham and to Southampton. That's yeah. all I said. Now, that is true. I certainly agree with that. With regards to the first point of what you were making, um, I definitely understand where you're coming from uh, because you're right. PSG now versus PSG when he was there in the early 2000s is, uh, yeah, it's it's a different it's a different club. There's no question about that. Um, but I do think that you are downplaying a few elements uh, beyond club's ownership, like you kind of talked about, like like the city of Paris, the supporters his own personal memories of playing for the club. I mean, those those are things that to him at the very least will matter. Right. That that I think will, you know, make but, him feel like he in some ways is coming home to to manage there again. And let me just ask you this. Like, okay, let let's say that the Newcastle takeover went through. And then let's say that that ownership group wanted Alan Shearer to come in and manage that team. Would that be would that be jarring? Would that be weird? No, I think that like I don't think anybody would be saying this is, you know, like we, we could see why, you know, Alan Shearer and Newcastle, it kind of just like, it, you can see that. Well, well, first of all, Andrew, Alan Shearer, born and bred Geordie, who forsook opportunities at United and good teams to go to his hometown team and try and, and keep them at the top of the, the Premier League, um, became the, the top, the record goal scorer. Um, it's a that's a that to me is a different thing than two seasons in Paris. No, no, but for but for whatever we perceive, Shearer and Newcastle or Pochettino and PSG, like that's irrelevant. Pochettino clearly has an affinity for his time at PSG. Andrew, so it, it does mean something to him, right? So he's going to settle in easy. He's it, life in Paris is going to be easy. That'll be uh, an e- we expect it should be an easier thing to settle into, um, and that he'll have the fan base behind him singing his name from the get go whenever they get back in the stands. That's a good thing too. Day-to-day management of a club, running a club with the superstructure it has right now is completely different. It just is. Um, yeah, I, I do think it would mean a lot to him to to get that club, in particular a Champions League trophy. And that's, you know, you say that they're of an ilk where like it's a different job than, than the rebuilding projects he's taken before. That's certainly true. But it is still a job that this team has not achieved the ultimate goal. And that yeah. is what he'll be in to try to help them achieve. I think uh, I think managing his star players, man management, the man management side of, of Pochettino is going to come to the fore now and it'll need to be very good. Yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, it's it's time to say Descend. peace out 2020. <laughs> That's right. 
It's our caught offside end of year retrospective. Like you've said, we've now gone back into my uh, my Y2K bunker. That's right. Yeah, which I only use for the most bleak of occasions, and and this falls into that category. We look back now on this uh, this bizarre year. This from a soccer perspective, this stop start year. Um, it was has there ever been a season a year like this from a from not just like a global perspective but from a sports perspective uh not in our lifetimes certainly not in many lifetimes um so it's it's an interesting one to look back on and you have gone ahead and you've put together 10 kind of questions or categories to help us look back on this year yes that's right andrew um i've rack my brains and and try to put together something that is a uh, a retrospective a thoughtful question based retrospective of what has been a as you said a weird weird scary year so let's go through it okay the, uh, the first one here we're coming right out of the gates with a big one the game of the year um can i go first here you may i may i will allow it so i've cheated a little bit as sometimes happens I did not necessarily limit this to one game, but one specific group of games, and that was the entire quarterfinal stage of the UEFA Champions League. Um, the Champions League does this. I guess a lot of cup tournaments do this every once in a while. Like two years ago, the semifinals of the Champions League. Like for whatever reason, that stage was insane. Um, and then sometimes you get stages that are, are duds. But the entire every match of the quarterfinals this year was crazy. You had um, RB Leipzig, the 88th minute winner from our own Tyler Adams. You had the incredible drama slash heartbreak of the PSG Atalanta match where Marquinhos gets the goal in the 90th minute to tie it. Um, followed just three minutes later by the Chupa Moteng winner um, where Atalanta were just, it was, it was truly devastating to watch that play out. Um, then you had probably the upset of the tournament with Lyon shocking Manchester City 3-1. They got the two late goals sandwiched around that horror miss from Raheem Sterling that could have equalized late. And then if I had to have chosen one specific game for this category, oh my God, the 8-2 Bayern Munich Barcelona destruction. And and the crazy thing about this game specifically, not just the scoreline in the end, but remember how it started? Thomas Muller scored in the fourth minute. And you think, uh-oh. Like, we all knew Bayern were the, probably the favorites of this tournament, but it's still Barcelona. You know, I guess you never know. But then the Muller goal, you think, oh, here we go. But then the fortuitous own goal from David Alaba in the seventh ties at 1-1. And Barcelona actually looked pretty good after that for a little bit. And then the 21st minute hit. And from the 21st to the 31st minute, uh, Bayern got goals from Perisic, Gnabry, and Muller. They blew it open to 4-1, and it never got any better than that. 8-2. So the, the quarterfinal stage of the Champions League was it was surreal, especially in the, the one-off format. It was not obviously the aggregate home and away two legs. This was just one and done, and it, it delivered. Yeah, yeah, for me, Andrew, I, I went with one game from that group of games. And I got to say, I really did enjoy that mini tournament we had in Lisbon. But the Atalanta-PSG game was the game for me, like the plucky upstarts from Italy, which had gone through such a terrible time in Bergamo with COVID versus the star-studded Qatarion behemoth. And those first 20 minutes were enthralling where Atalanta were cut open, um, but Neymar kept fluffing his lines. And you thought, oh my God, is this going to be one of the big upsets? And then... 
Um, Pasilic bends one into the top corner and we're on full upset mode. And, um, you know, Atalanta fell out of, st- you know, they ran out of steam and they had to be actually Italian in the second half, a bit Catanaccio on trying to defend. And, and you know, you you laid out what happened with the Marquinhos goal. And also, it was amazing to me that the in this galaxy of PSG stars, it was the man, the man who will forever be Stoke City, Eric Chupamoting finding the winner. So, yeah, that was my um, that was my game of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Forever Stoke City. Uh, let's see. The second question that you had here, JJ, your uh, favorite podcast of the year. Yeah, um, I had, I was, uh, I was, it could be any podcast. I don't mind if you came up with a, a podcast that wasn't ours, but um, I think some of our early lockdown podcasts were really good, um, but mostly really important because I needed them at that point. I know I told people how uh, I did at least two podcasts under the influence of COVID-19. <laughs> One of them when I finished. You know, you know, Andrew, it's not, you know, it's not working in a mine or in a steel factory doing a, a football podcast, but it felt like that at the end of the one, uh, the first one I did with COVID. I, I stopped recording. I took off a hoodie I was wearing, which was just like drenched in sweat and then just like collapsed on the sofa for about 12 hours. Um, I know it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but going back to do the, the retro time capsule podcast, the 2006 final, as if we were really at it was a lot of fun. And, um, but mostly they were, those early lockdown podcasts were good because they were a distraction from what was going on in New York at the time. Yeah. I actually said the same thing. Um, the early quarantine podcasts, we had a, a, a few, like a few of the subject matters that we got into. First of all, there was just like, you're right. Doing these, um, I remember I, I had the one podcast where I went off on just like, I needed to hear from listeners that were in my situation of like, working a full-time job and simultaneously taking care of a a four-year-old and a seven-month-old. Like I remember I was starting to lose it. And that podcast, the reaction afterwards was important because I couldn't believe the number of people who reached out to say that they were also losing their minds. Uh, So that personally was important. Um, Also on one of the podcasts, I'd love to go back and find this. You did that thing that was so funny to me, JJ, where you made fun of all the new commercials that were getting thrown together um, to kind of like emotionally help people through this new normal and like this, the piano kicks in. Like it was Honda just- is there for you. Honda wants you to know that Honda will be there to be bought and for you to give us your money whenever this is over or even right now while this is on. Right. And we're <laughs> right. Hi, I'm Tony the tiger. And usually I'm telling you that frosted flakes are great, but Right now, things aren't great, but Frosted Flakes is here to help you through. Like it was, and, and reached the point where it was so true that a buddy of mine who works in advertising, who listens to the podcast, reached out. He texted me, and he was like, "Look, what you're saying is a hundred percent true. All of us within the advertising world are aware of it, but the problem is." The clients want this right now. They feel like it's it's the type of ad that they need their no. company to be making. And in fact, everyone decided at the same time. And so it just became it became too much. It was just like it was too emotional every time your favorite show would go to break. It was just like, oh God. I, I, I've got one more that came out in the middle of the summer. So we missed out on it. Uh, I'm not going to name the company. All right. I'm not going to say it's them or who, who they are. Uh, I'll, they're just a, an insurance company. And their advert makes me want to retch everywhere when I hear it. They go, hey, how you doing? Yeah, us too. 
Oh, God. Oh, mega corporations trying to pretend like they're my buddy from college. No, no, not having it. Yeah. Um, also, we did like there were a, a couple other fun topics that I remember we did. Um, the we did the non rewatchables, like the games that we made our list of games that we could absolutely never rewatch. That's right. Um, and also, Demarcus Beasley, I remember he released his all time US 11. I remember that was a fun thing to debate. And like you said, uh, the uh, the time machine podcast of the uh, US Spain match and the Zidane headbutt, while they were weird and like odd to do um they were in some ways going back and like rewatching all the highlights and reading about them it was it was fun and then so, the yeah, Bundes- some of those. then the bundesliga came in and rescued us we had football <laughs> to talk about right we didn't have to be creative anymore no <laughs> <laughs> um all right the this one i i this was a great category that you came up with here the third one here the uh wtf moment of 2020 the what the bleep moment of 2020 would you like to go first yeah let me let me do it because mine is quite general um okay i think that whole few weeks surrounding liverpool playing at home to atletico madrid when this thing was clearly this COVID 19 crisis was clearly reaching a crescendo and it's like can we wedge in one more dramatic game and i'm like is this okay and then i saw the cheltenham horse racing festival (laughs) was still going ahead i'm like oh my god this is bad and then it culminated with miguel arteta um being uh being released that Mikel Arteta had COVID-19 and mm-hmm. like the first manager the first person I, I I it just bowled me over absolutely bowled me over and um then later there was uh <laughs> there was something that's gone viral I'm sure everyone's seen it I don't need to play the clip but um David Guetta was uh DJing for an event called uh United at Home for M- uh for MLS uh, Major League Soccer and um you know, you just got to know your place sometimes and, and know who and what you are and know what's appropriate. And this was after the horrific death of, of, of George Floyd. And you can imagine how tensions were in the country at this time. And he's in Midtown on the roof of a building and he's dropping Martin Luther King quotations into his into his DJ set and giving shout outs to people. And I'm like, oh, dude. Mm. Uh, you can find that on uh, on the internet. It's it's gone very viral, <laughs> particularly in American soccer. It's it's absolutely surreal. And also, yeah. just the other thing was TV companies. As if I didn't know the control TV money has over soccer, I definitely know it now. I mean, when I saw that how much money could potentially be be withheld by a major TV company from the Bundesliga, and this was driving the return to football. And you always think of the Bundesliga as this very well-run league, but even it is not safe from the fact that it needs this this lifeblood of TV money. That really, um, that including the furloughs, really really hit me as uh, some of my WTF moments. Yeah. So for mine, JJ, I figured it was easier to just do this. So there, I don't, I don't often curse on this podcast. I'm a, I'm a professional. I believe in professionalism. And, uh, but there was one moment this past year where I literally did say WTF. I literally said it. And so I figured like that would have to be then my WTF moment of 2020. So instead of just kind of like repeating it, I actually have it queued up here. Oh, okay. Um, and so I can play for you this what my what the bleep moment of 2020 was from this is from our podcast that we did back on March 18th. So like the realness of what was happening around us was only 
really just settling in. I think like March 13th was when this was when the world kind of like really, or the U S at least really like kind of plummeted into chaos. Uh, so it was kind of just hitting us. So this was, this is a, a clip from that um, with my WTF moment. So throwback sound effect. It's funny how quickly your brain adapts to a new situation. For example, I'm sitting at my desk yesterday at work and I'm just going about my job and I'm just like kind of like lost within what I'm doing and within this new reality. And I look up, there's a TV screen right above my desk and on it, it's on SportsCenter. And you know how like when there's breaking news on the bottom line of SportsCenter, it flashes red. I see it flash red. I look up and it's the announcement of the 2020 European Championships in Copa America have been canceled. And I kind of look at it, I think, oh, yeah. I mean, saw that coming. And then I just go back, put my head back down and continue going about my work. And it was at about that point that six months ago, me popped into my head and went, what the f***? (laughs) That just happened? Like the Euros and Copa America were just canceled and you're not even reacting? That's where we are. Like, that's how crazy there's there's. We're in a place now where, like, there's nothing so crazy anymore that I could see that it will phase me. That would be it, my friend. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. I remember that. I remember that well. And I I had the same thing. I saw the same, um, you know, Chiron come up and think, huh, well, it makes sense. Look at the situation we're in. And then I stopped. When is the last time a major tournament's ever been canceled? Right, like that's the thing is like these tournaments take years of planning. The qualifications for teams, this is like players wait their entire careers for these moments and like we we as fans wait 4 years for these tournaments to come around. We build up the excitement so much and like just in one fell swoop, bang, gone. Copa America, European Championship, bang, gone. And like I don't think I sent one text to anybody like, Oh my God, you just see what happened. I don't think I got one text. It was just like, it didn't even register. Like it was the craziest to me that like, that was the signal of just like how quickly our brains adapt to these bizarre circumstances. So for me, that was, that was clearly my uh, WTF moment of, uh, of 2020. That's a very real one. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, All right. The goal of the year. Um, there have probably been better goals uh, in 2020, better strikes. I, I I think of Neto for Wolves as one of my favorite goals where uh, Matt Doherty just swings this cross in after a brilliant Adama Traore run and it's volleyed for first time, roof of the net against West Ham. Beautiful. But I think Messi and the sight of Messi taking on the entire Napoli defense in an empty new Camp, him being surrounded falling over and yet still getting up to score was absolutely thrilling and just a distillation of what this guy can still do and um his celebration showed how much that as they say that action meant to him he just jumps in the air you know the way nowadays Messi scores goals and it's quite a muted celebration this was just pure joy I watched it again he takes on four or five players falls over almost loses the ball then digs it out and curls it past the keeper into the bottom corner sheer genius highlight real stuff and um just amazing i love that goal yeah no that that is certainly a good one i should say as a disclaimer for this the uh, so the puskas award winner was just announced and it was the son 
goal against Burnley. Yeah. Um, which so, I'm, so for I'm, people for people hmm. wondering why neither of us are going to say that I, I, as a I'm not going to say that one either. It's because it occurred in, in December of 2019. So I, it technically falls out of the parameters of this year. Um, so that is I should say that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so for me, I decided to keep it uh, keep it here with MLS, and I went with a goal that you referenced after it happened. I don't think I talked about it, but Kevin Molino's goal oh. to United FC against Port Kansas City, and it's not just the goal itself, but I, I can't help sometimes but include the context in which a goal occurs in the postseason uh, as the underdog. You've just gone up one nil, and I think everybody's kind of waiting for the Sporting Kansas City response. Um, and for Molino to do that for Minnesota to extend the lead to two nil and just put this kind of the, deliver this demoralizing blow to Sporting KC, the kind of like how would you describe it, JJ? For those who haven't seen it, I would say first of all, just Google it and see it. But like this kind of like the ball is played into him and he sort of like volleys it from over his shoulder, like a diving volley over but, the shoulder kind of thing. It was it was an but the angle is perfectly placed. Great goal. I've never seen a goal quite like it. Again, it's over the shoulder, but he doesn't smash it because he can't. He's got this tiny window to the right-hand side of the goalkeeper, and he has to put it in that exact pocket or he's not scoring. And he finds it. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's so deft and subtle. You, The first time you see it, you think, has he scuffed that? What is that? The second and third time, you see the, the genius of the pass, first of all. And then you see the wondrous finish. It's it's a it's a truly brilliant goal. Yep. Uh, all right. Next one. Our favorite guest. Wow, that we had on this podcast. What a uh, what a self-aggrandizing uh, trip down memory lane this is, where we can just pat ourselves on the back for all the things we've done. I know, and I'm using this as as a reason. If people over the, this extended holiday period, because um, a lot of our listeners in in various countries, including our own, are in different states of lockdown and staying at home. Still, um, we've had some great interviews despite everything that's happened. And I was just flicking through some of them. We've had, obviously, in the last few weeks, we had Arsene Wenger. Um, he used to manage Arsenal. I think he was good. Um, we had Kate Abdo of CBS and, and Fox Boxing. And my God, she's just everywhere. Uh, Guy Mowbray, lead commentator. Oh, he was. Those were so fun, those interviews with him. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think the first one in particular was really, really good, where he he uh, he challenged me on why no one will ever support England. <laughs> in a world cup from yeah, outside well, of it. Yeah, that one was fun because that was also like right in the peak of, of the quarantine, nothing was happening for quite some time. So that was just like a very general conversation about um, some of the ga- like famous games that he's called and, and just like the state of the sport. That was, yeah, that was very, I enjoyed that one quite a bit. And of course, of course, James Montague had a, another amazing book out about um, hooligan and, and, and ultra culture across the world. Uh, where he visits with the ultras, of course. James couldn't just write at a distance. He has to go there and be a part of it. Right. And it's an amazing book. And, uh, you know, just from America to the Balkans to Italy. And, and that interview was just, I mean, people reacted amazingly to that one too. And also, it just um, Kate Abdo is such, such a lovely person. And we had her on and uh, we lost the interview for a brief few hours and um, you being able to rescue that was pretty great too because Kate had just finished uh, her CBS Champions League coverage, had gone back to her hotel room. And at that point, it was almost, it was past midnight. Yeah. And I was, I kept texting her saying, you don't, you don't have to do this. It's late. And she's like, no, not at all. I want to. Um, so yeah, that was awesome. Uh, so that was fun that we saved that one too. But we, but we should say in the end, she didn't have to recreate that interview. We, we 
we did recover it. So, oh, you you recovered it with your amazing skills. Yes, it's sad that some of my best work on this podcast occurs off mic. It's never when you open your mouth. That's no, for sure. No. <laughs> um, but I should say, I'll throw in my uh, my favorite guest of twenty two. All those ones that you just said. First of all, thank you to all those people for coming on this show. That's incredibly generous of all of them. And um, for me, Kobe Jones's interview with us really stood out. Uh, it was after. Um, George Floyd had occurred and the social justice movement and the sports world were intermeshing in a way that we had not seen in, in generations. And it's one thing for you and I to share our thoughts and our viewpoint on it. But I, I thought it was important to hear from someone like Kobe Jones, who has, you know, who his perspective is obviously going to be different than ours. And I, you know, for a guy, we've had him on this show before, but full disclosure, I've never met him personally. And, you know, and this, the subject matter in which we were discussing was so deeply personal uh, and his willingness, not just not only to, to come on the show to talk about it, but to open up in the way that he did. I thought it was uh, incredibly important and um, incredibly illuminating. And uh, I was so appreciative of his willingness to do that. And I thought it was just a, a really um, introspective look at uh, his thoughts on on everything that was happening is with racial equality and sports. And yeah, so I thought that it, one was, t- was really good. Yeah. He was, he was so honest and open and also, you know, there wasn't any questions off limits. I mean, I remember asking him about being in UCLA around the time of the Los Angeles riots and what it was like then to be a black person in LA. And he was very honest. And, and also he came up, he had solutions, Andrew. He, he talked about voting and the importance of, down ballot voting and 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 the importance of of democracy really he was very good yeah um all right uh next one jg the uh the worst moment of 2020 you want to go first yeah i i think for me and anyone who listens to this podcast knows that i've been you know i was pretty open and emotional about the the death of jack charlton but jack charlton was in his mid-80s he had a, a wonderful life a life most people couldn't have imagined they could live because he had several lives within one life. Um, and then Diego Maradona too. Um, the podcast we did immediately after he died was, was, it was really terrible because I think Maradona, he was almost on this like tour, you know, he was still managing, he was still chasing something. He was still trying to be Diego, but obviously not on the field anymore. And, um, and 60 and is no age for him to go. And I feel like I, I just wanted more time with him. And and um and, and I know this sounds so this sounds terrible. His death actually in one way was amazing because we got to relive and remind ourselves how great this person was. But I'm ultimately I can't get away from the fact I'm so sad. I watched um SF Capadia's uh, a documentary again about about his time at Napoli. It's just amazing. It, it, what he did was just so stunning and will never be done again to lift a regional team to, to two Serie A titles, a UEFA Cup, and just to make them the kings of Italy. Amazing. And uh, he was an amazing player, but, you know, so much sadness that he passed away. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, in a year of where death has, has been front and center in our lives, uh, you know, Jack Charlton, Diego Maradona, Last week, I, I didn't get to mention this, but one of the great managers of Scottish football passed away. Um, now, we we occasionally talk about Scottish football in the context of Celtic and Rangers on the podcast, but I, I was reminded again through death 
of Jim McLean and how amazing he was. He was the manager that brought Dundee United, Andrew, to the semi-finals of the European Cup in 1984. He passed away. Um, He was from an era when the best managers were angry and Scottish. And um, it's just just a stunning time for Scottish football. Uh, They were were 2-0 up from their home uh, tie at Tannadice Park and they they lost 3-2 at the in, in rather shady circumstances at the Stadio Olimpico and then 3 years later Dundee actually did make it to the final of a European competition the UEFA Cup in 87 where on the way they recorded a 3-1 aggregate quarter final win over Barcelona and a 2-0 aggregate victory over Borussia Mönchengladbach in the semi-final and they lost the final to IFK Gothenburg which oh my god just terrible but um yeah, I suppose the worst moments of 2020 were were the realization that death was all around us and and some legends of of my lifetime passing away. Yeah, um, mine is is far lighter than that, but still not not great. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I I never tee you up properly. Um, and it, I, I went with the uh, I guess the uh, the ugliness between Lionel Messi and Barcelona. Um, I'll read this. These were the opening two paragraphs of Sid Lowe's story in The Guardian after Messi declared that he would stay with Barca. Uh, Sid writes, Lionel Messi is staying at Barcelona. Ten days after he served official notice of his determination to walk out of Camp Nou, he finally announced that he would not be going after all. Not because he changed his mind, but because he had been left with no choice. Unwilling to go to court against the club who instead... He had missed, uh, who insisted he had missed the deadline, allowing him to rescind his contract and threatened him with legal action if he departed unilaterally. He has been forced to continue. That is just such a, for for these two titans of this sport, Lionel Messi, probably the greatest player of all time, and Barcelona among the greatest clubs of all time. And the way that the two are, are interwoven, like within the fabric of each other and of this game, those paragraphs are just so cold to yeah. me and it's just so unfortunate uh, and I've always heard it said that um, one of the most difficult things that a, a club or a manager ownership general manager whoever can do in sports is is try to manage the end of the career of a legend now I don't necessarily know that we're at the end of Lionel Messi's career but we're probably on the other side certainly of his of his peak and his pinnacle and like whatever, whatever can be done to manage the end of, of that run properly. It just feels like Barcelona are not doing it. Um, and we've been left with this uncomfortable, um, marriage of temporary convenience, I suppose, between these, these two giants. And it's, uh, it's been ugly. Uh, it feels like it's not going to be headed towards an amicable departure. Uh, he's almost certainly going to go and end his career wearing, the colors of another club, which will undoubtedly look weird. Um, but it's, it's almost a certainty that that's what we're headed towards. And, uh, it's just been, I don't know. I I can't imagine anyone who's watched this play out between Messi and Barcelona and, and been happy about it or or like, like, unless you're just a Barcelona hater, if you're like an Espanol fan or Real Madrid, then I suppose. Um, but if you're just a fan of the sport, uh, it's just, it's been a bad look all around. And so, um, Here's hoping that like it, they can end on some kind of good terms, and we can see Messi back in that stadium, which I'm sure we will one day. To you know, to unbelievable ovations from the fan base that that will um, love him forever. But right now, it's just it's just uncomfortable um, between those two, and it's it's kind of a, a bummer throughout the course of this year. Um, so that would be that would be mine. 
Yeah, it's a good one. We don't like our legends to go out in, in acrimony. Right. Uh, one, uh, by the way, I wanted to shoehorn this in real quickly here because we mentioned Kobe Jones before, and I knew there was something I wanted to say about him, and I couldn't remember what, and it, it dawned on me. Well, vice president. Uh, he he announced last week. He announced his candidacy for U.S. Psych, uh, U.S. Soccer vice president. Um, he he put it up in a message on social media. Um, so he'll he'll he's attempting to, uh, I guess, be vice president alongside uh, Cindy Parlo Cohn. And um, in his statement, he you know it's funny we were talking about how we spoke to him about you know civil rights and and social justice and racial equality. And in his statement to declare his his candidacy, that's really what he is running on is um are those tenants of of the game and um so good good luck to him certainly um all right so we went through worst moment jj now the uh let's go let's go now with the opposite of that of course the best moment the most uplifting story um can i go first here you may it was very fitting to me jj that in his last uh act of 2020 um, Marcus Rashford scored a stoppage time winning goal for Manchester United. And it in in such a negative year, um, Marcus Rashford, I think, was kind of one of those, like, not to sound corny or cheesy, but he was kind of one of those shining lights that I think really was able to spread a positive message uh, in a time when people so desperately needed it. Um, just the work that he did uh, this year, um, he was honored by the the queen in England with an MBE, a member of the order of the British empire uh, for his work in helping children receive school meals during the coronavirus pandemic in June, Rashford won a U-turn from the government in the United Kingdom to enable more than 1 million school children to receive meal vouchers throughout the summer holiday. He's only 22 years old, JJ. He's a brilliant player. Uh, He's got a, a full career ahead of him still where we have no idea just how high the ceiling on this guy could be. And yet it's, you see things like this and it's hard not to feel like his greatest contributions are going to be made off the pitch, which is truly saying something. Cause like I said, he's a great player. Um, but the work that he did this year away from the sport and using his celebrity for good, uh, it was such a positive message. And so that to me was, uh, was easily my most uplifting story of 2020. I, I think I have something in, in a similar vein, Andrew, and, and that is a great one. Rashford has been just a role model in the best possible sense of that term. Um, I've taken football's leading role in the Black Lives Matter movement after the death of George Floyd. Um, the way we saw players react in the Bundesliga, uh, none more so than our own Weston McKinney, who wore an armband asking for justice for George Floyd, Uh, But the general movement across football to highlight what was going on around the world as regards racial discrimination and racial inequality was was amazing. And it continues right now. And if you look at, at, at the way it wasn't driven by ownership, it wasn't driven by chairman, it wasn't driven by companies or seen to be or 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 even really um coordinated in any fashion it was um people within football clubs who wanted to um share in the moment's not the right term but to highlight what was going on in the united states and around the world and to show solidarity and also to show that they will not accept this anymore if you look liverpool led by uh, you know genie winaldon they they posed for a photo straight away afterwards um, and, and there was just movements within clubs, players taking it upon themselves, using their platform 
to spread the message that this cannot go on. Um, I thought that was just so affecting and it was, it was actually uplifting and, and it, you know, we've seen times where there, it's been met with resistance. We saw at FC Dallas, the way the, the players um, were, were, where the fans responded to what the players were doing on the field um, with their, with their silent dignified protest. And, and also we saw at Millwall recently what happened, but the players keep doing it. The players are using their platform in a very unselfish and a very important way. And um, and it's being led by players. For me, that's the most important part. And it was very uplifting to see that. Yeah. No, that's, that is a good one, certainly, as well. Um, all right. A couple more to go here, JJ. This one is interesting. I'm curious what you'll say. The underrated story of the year. Well, mine is a kind of a, a long-running story that we're, we're still not really... I think we disengaged with a while ago, but... Recent events have made us kind of re-engage with it. It's um, it's FIFA, really. Uh, so recently, former FIFA president, I say recently, in the last few weeks, uh, Sepp Blatter was back in the news as FIFA, current FIFA issued a complaint of criminal mismanagement to a Zurich prosecutor against him. Um, and that put Blatter back front and center. But 2020 also marked 10 years since the announcement by then FIFA president Blatter himself of the winning bid for the 2022 World Cup. And I saw this tweet and it stuck with me. I saw it in uh, at the start of December um, from Eli Mengham, who works for uh, Copa 90. Copa 90 tweeted out, 10 years ago today, this happened on December 2nd. And it's Blatter revealing from an envelope uh, Qatar and Russia as the future hosts of the 2018 and the 2022 World Cup. And Eli typed this, 22 people voted on the outcome of this decision. Of those 22, 15 are now either banned from FIFA for life, suspended, imprisoned, or fighting extradition to the United States to face federal charges. Oh my God. (laughs) Only one still actually works for FIFA. And then I looked at this recent Guardian report from November. Companies in Qatar have failed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in salaries and other benefits to low-wage workers since the coronavirus outbreak, according to new research by the human rights group Equidium. In its report, Equidium describes how thousands of workers have been dismissed without any notice, put on reduced wages wages or unpaid leave, denied outstanding salary and end-of-service payments are forced to pay for their own flights home. The report's findings appear to amount to wage theft on an unprecedented scale, leaving worker after worker destitute, short of food, and unable to send money home during the pandemic in one of the richest countries in the world. Now, definitely coronavirus has kind of, you know, obscured this ongoing story and the kind of the horror show that has been the preparation for the Qatar World Cup. Um, in, 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 again, it was the Guardian in March that reported about how some of the, the labor workers were being quarantined and kind of kept separate in, 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 in terrible conditions as COVID-19 spread. Um, and these are migrant workers too. And we know we've heard the stories and the reports and investigations into the safety of these migrant workers building for this, this great tournament we're going to have that, Still, as I sit here, on the eve of 2021, we'll still go ahead in Qatar. So it's FIFA, really, Andrew, and um, and the continuing fallout from what happened 10 years ago under Sepp Blatter. Wow. Uh, let's see. My underrated story of the year. First off, I wanted to give an honorable mention 
for this category. It also, I suppose, could have been in the previous category as well, best moment, most uplifting. Uh, my honorable mention would be to the Columbus crew because the culmination of their story, uh, the grassroots movement saved the crew to remain in Columbus. And then they go out and win the title the next year. Like it's it's a Disney movie, I feel like, waiting to happen. If it was, yeah. if, if it didn't actually happen, it might actually be like one of those too cheesy to to really appreciate type scripts, but this actually happened. Um, so that I wanted to just throw that in there because it deserves a mention for just how amazing it is and how much those fans deserve it. Uh, but my underrated story of the year, JJ, I guess sort of along the lines of yours, with FIFA or whatever, uh, everything having to do with Manchester City and financial fair play. Um, the so like I, I feel like the story kind of just got swallowed up. I mean, it was a huge deal. We did an emergency podcast on it after it happened, but I feel like it got a little bit swallowed up just by everything else going on around it uh, within sports and within the world. But first, there was the harsh ruling against them: the the two year ban from European play plus a, a thirty million euro fine, and then take that all the way through the court of arbitration for sport overturning the ruling doing away with the ban on European play and levying just a 10 million euro fine for failing to cooperate with the investigation. And I don't know, something about overturning the decision for reasons like insufficient evidence, that one I guess is legitimate, but more so the time barred rulings, um, things, you know, falling outside of like the, the arbitrary five year window that I guess they had given themselves um, to gather evidence from. I mean, some of that just, it just left some, many feeling a little bit empty. Jurgen Klopp called it, quote, bad for football. Mm. Um, Jose Mourinho said that it was disgraceful. Um, Pep was certainly very happy. And I think he demanded an apology from the, from the, the football world, but yeah. uh, he might be waiting for that for quite some time. So Manchester City, like, it, and it's one, I guess I say it's the underrated story of the year because we, um, you know, like, it's it's potentially history changing when you look at that club. Like Kevin De Bruyne was talking already about possibly wanting to leave to go somewhere else, but you know them remaining within uh, Champions League play and Champions League eligibility. You know who knows what great players will then continue to want to go there, and like what you know the the money of being in the Champions League will continue to do for them um, and being able to stave off future financial fair play rulings and violations. So it's. It was a really, really important moment for that club. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought it got a little bit swallowed up by some bigger stories. So I made it my underrated story of the year for 2020. A good choice, sir. And one that will obviously endear you to Manchester City fans. As I found out before, you may not criticize Manchester City. Oh, really? you found that out? Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's a dangerous game you're playing, my friend. Okay. Well, I mean, look, these are things that happened. I'm not like making anything up here. It's- oh, I know, I know. But don't, don't, you know, don't let facts get in the way of the fact of the fact you're just bitter. They've been so successful, and it's been nothing to do with large amounts of money. I see. Um, all right, two more to go here, JJ. Our big hope for 2021. I would like to go first because I'm so excited about it. I, I can barely contain myself. I. I just have to let the world know. I have to scream from the top of a mountain how excited I am for what's to come with the U.S. men's national team. There it is. It's out there. I've said it now, everyone. I love this team. I am incredibly eager to see where things go from here. Um, I would even say this. like This might be the best I have felt about this team ever. And I know that like they've 
they've had very good squad. Like the 2002 team that went to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, like they they have had very good teams. But like this, like what we're seeing right now, I sometimes feel like we we're almost beginning to to reach a point where we're taking it a little bit for granted. What we're seeing right now with some of these players at such young ages starring the way that they are for such prominent clubs around Europe, Dest starting in Barcelona, McKinney scoring Champions League goals that may be under consideration for goals of the tournament. Uh, Christian Pulisic, like even when Chelsea's playing poorly, Frank Lampard is still complimenting him. Like he's, he's been their shining light. Um, you know, now we're seeing stories about Brian Reynolds at 19 being linked with Juventus. It seems like a huge move for him as just a teenager is on the horizon. Nothing's done yet. I know there's been conflicting reports. Um, you know, Gio Reyna just signing a new contract with Borussia Dortmund and being talked about as one of the, the best young players in all of Europe, not just in the Bundesliga. This is this is without precedent. I mean, I know like the, the U.S. soccer old heads will tell you about other generations and great players, and that's true. And maybe those guys paved the way for things like this to be happening now. But the fact is, you know, that's all whether or not certain players from past generations could have truly thrived for big clubs is is speculation. But what we're seeing right now is it actually happening. And these guys, like I said, are so young. And so for this past year to have essentially from a national team perspective, been somewhat of a lost year in terms of these guys playing together. It's why I'm so excited for 2021 because the, the games are becoming are going to be coming fast and furious. And so we're really going to start to see these guys playing together, developing together, this group, all these guys, similar age, coming up uh, as a team together here, just to take you through the calendar quickly. So there's it hasn't been announced officially yet, but it's in Serbia, I think they've already said that there's going to be a friendly with the U.S. on January 31st. A Serbian uh, publication confirmed. Yeah, so I don't know that the U.S. has confirmed that, but it's something to, I, I guess, keep your eyes open for. Uh, then in late March, I believe, we'll, we'll have friendlies. Friendlies are weird because those could be scheduled with not a ton of notice, so it's hard to, to build those in. But then uh, after that, in May, I believe, is the Nations League semifinals and third place game. Uh, in July, we have a Gold Cup, which I don't care what – Anyone says I am going to be excited about to watch this to see Bearhalter really like begin to establish how whatever he is he wants to be doing with this group like that's where we'll really start to get a good look at it. July and August we'll have the Olympics, uh, and with the depth now of young talent being what it is, you're going to see a lot of players that that's going to be an important tournament for them. And then here we go, JJ. This is the year. This is the year where the Redemption Tour really ramps up. September 3rd, the World Cup qualifiers begin. Uh, there will be, th- or in September, uh, I forget ex- the exact date, but there's three World Cup qualifiers in September, three more in October, two more in November. So there is going to be a lot for U.S. soccer fans, U.S. men's national team fans to be looking forward to this year. Um, it should be fun. We'll, we'll really start to see what this group has in terms of being able to, to play together. So this is... That is my hope. This group, these young, talented American players, that is my hope for 2021. You mentioned Brian Reynolds there. Nothing officially confirmed about his potential move to Europe, but uh, one that is confirmed by the Borussia Mönchengladbach account, uh, Joseph Scali of NYCFC is due to arrive on Monday. He will undergo all the necessary medical examinations, and then he will have a chance to showcase himself in first-team training. Wow. And also the other one that I think um, it, there was speculation about Mark McKenzie going to uh, Scotland, but it, it now appears that he'll be going to Genk. 
Um, yeah, and Genk, if you look at the production line they've had over the last few years, that is a a great move for for McKenzie. Definitely. Uh, So, yeah, lots. uh, You know, I I didn't even mention Brendan Aronson, who's just now going to be embarking on his European adventure with Salzburg. So there there is a lot to be excited about right now. What do you I've have? gone. Uh, I've gone big picture in my big hope for 2021. Uh, fans back in the stands, Andrew. Oh, yeah, we've got through it. We are still watching it, but let's not kid ourselves that this zombie football is even close to the game we love. It will be a symbol that we are out of this thing when we have 50,000 people in the stands. Jock Steen was absolutely right when he said football without fans is nothing. By the way, that quote. Football without fans is nothing. How many clubs have attributed that to their own club legend? Like nearly every club. <laughs> it's amazing. It's one of those quotes, rent a quote. But uh, I'm giving it to Jock. Nice. Uh, all right, final one here, fitting one, the standout moment of the year. Um, can I go first here? I think you'll You may, that. because I think we're going to be in simpatico with this oh, one. Well... Some of these, you know, I try to, to think, I try to be creative and clever with uh, the direction I go. But for this one, there's there's no reason to dance around it. Just embrace the obvious. The standout moment of the year uh, was Liverpool breaking their title drought. Uh, look, the, the team deserved it. They were clearly, clearly the best team in the league. Um, so, you know, you have to be, whether regardless of what you think of, of the colors, the team, Liverpool, like that group of players, that manager... There's no way around it. They were uh, they were as deserving a group as you could have. Uh, unquestionably, the way they play is enjoyable, easy on the eye. It's a group of players that it seems, at least from afar, to be a, a generally likable group. Um, so, like, ease, this was this was an easy one, and, and mostly, of course, for this podcast. Um, genuinely, I was happy for you. I know what this meant to you. I remember doing those podcasts with you. Um, you know, cause we've been, we've been at this for a decent amount of time now, like after the Gerard slip versus oh. Chelsea, the three, three, that was our Palace. first year recording. Yeah. Uh, the three, three against palace, the, the, uh, and like underrated ones, even too. I remember how frustrated you were like when, when Brendan Rogers in the champions league against Real Madrid is putting out a B squad, essentially conceding. Oh. It's just like, not, not what Liverpool fans had come to expect from their club, even though they liked Brendan Rogers, it was just like these moments that, you know, it was just just didn't feel right for, for the Liverpool support. And, and I remember just talking with you around those matches off the air too. And, you know, so I know how much this meant to you, your, your dad um, and the supporters in general. And yes, it was sad that the cop end couldn't be filled with, with, you know, songs and celebrations, but uh, I don't think that, uh, that you and Liverpool supporters appreciated it any less. So no. congrats. Cause it was, it was easily the standout moment of the year. Yeah, that's my big moment too, Andrew. And I, you've said everything really. I can't add much more to it except that, you know, um, for years growing up in the schoolyard, you know, we were, we were, I, w- I was just, you know, old enough to be coming off the back end of Liverpool's great successes when I start support, started supporting them. So from England and from the media and from Liverpool itself, you always got the sense that Liverpool would always be good. They'll forever be good. And this is only a blip. And next year will be our year. And then next year turned to 10 years, turned to 15 years. And imagine on 15 years, we were only halfway there. Right, right. Another 15 years before, before, I mean, English football's most storied club would lift a trophy again. The major trophy, the Premier League. Um, top flight football. Amazing. So absolutely amazing. And And if anybody wants to go back and listen to that podcast that we did, it's available on Spotify and iTunes. 
um, where it was finally confirmed um, Pulisic uh, doing us a favour for Chelsea against Man City. And um, yeah, wonderful time, wonderful moment. And uh, I know uh, coming from me, it's obvious, but that was the biggest moment of the year for me. Yeah. Can I, um, before we get out, Andrew, can I give you a few of our listeners' big moments? And Well, um, I, I do have one more thing though on the standout oh. moment with Liverpool. Um, Interesting. Because I know how much these this is is enjoyed by you specifically uh so i felt like we could only end this with that's right AJ. <laughs> liverpool oh title winning trivia that's not this won't go well my brain is fried but go on all right these are um so it's trivia time for uh you with regards to just i know you claim to be a liverpool supporter uh, but let's see just how well you you knew this title-winning team. All right. All right. Uh, who led Liverpool in goals with 19? Uh, Mohamed Salah. That's right. Uh, only one Liverpool player picked up a red card in their title-winning season in the league. Who was it? Oh, one Liverpool player, red card. Can't even remember it. Jordan Henderson. Allison. <laughs> forgotten it completely forgotten it there you have oh. it uh let's see liverpool defeated everton in the third round of the fa cup one nil who scored their goal um curtis jones very good very proud of you uh, bender into the top corner lovely only one liverpool player started all 38 started it's important started all 38 league games can you name him virgil van dyke very good very good uh, Jordan Henderson captained Liverpool in the vast majority of games last season across all competitions, but not all of them. Who captained Liverpool in the second most games? James Milner. Yes, with 10. Van Dijk was next with eight. Look at you go. You did. It seems like you did know this team after all. Okay, this is a very, t- this is a difficult one. I enjoyed this one. Uh, who scored Liverpool's first goal of their title winning campaign? First goal. Um, Sadio Mane. Uh, it's actually a trick question. It was an own goal by Norwich's Grant Hanley. Oh, okay. All that right. Was, that was how it became. <laughs> that was how it all started. And, and then, that's where that's the game Allison got injured in. Oh my God, Andrew! I watched that in Portland with real people in the before times. What are real people? I'm not familiar with them. People um, who I could reach out and touch. And then, last but not least, is a link between the two title winning seasons. The last time Liverpool won the title, who was their leading scorer? Uh, that would have been uh, that was eighty nine ninety. Ian Rush, John Barnes. I'm sorry, oh, Barnes. Oh, no, Johnny 22, Barnes. Twenty two goals Friend. in the league, twenty eight in all competitions. Friend of the podcast. Yeah, turns out you didn't quite know the team as well as you thought you did. No, it's pathetic for me, really. Yep. So there you go. There you go. That is the year, JJ. You said you had some listener submissions too. Yeah, a couple of things that struck me about football. I asked for things that touched people, that made them happy, that made them sad, that was memorable. I'm going to start with Dalton. I am the local high school goalkeeping coach here in small town Idaho. I live in an area dominated by American football and basketball. And after living in Brazil for a few years, moving to here where soccer isn't really a thing is sad. But we went on to win the state tournament, winning the semi in penalties, and then 1-0 in a hard-fought game where we had insane rain, snow, and wind. Coming home, they shut down Main Street and everyone came out and cheered us home. After this crazy year with COVID and many of other things, to see the town rally around this team the way it did was amazing and it gives me chills to just think about it. That was pretty cool. Nice. Um, 
Aaron, for me, it was the All or Nothing Spurs documentary. It was the Christmas episode in particular that saddened me. I've always loved the festive fixtures, lounging comfortably on my couch to watch the matches. However, seeing how these men were separated from their families, alone in hotel rooms, calling their partners, kids, relatives, moved me to tears. Sure, these are wealthy. These men are wealthy, but but everyone should be able to spend time with family on Christmas. Yeah, the Musa Sissoko scene, I'm guessing, is... uh... I think so, yeah. Yeah, we we don't like seeing how the sausage is made, do we? We just like no, oh, we, we sit at home. We love oh, another game. This is fantastic, mom, dad, come in here. Let's watch together. Oh, that's right. These players are they have families too. They're they're people. Nope, <laughs> they're just here for our entertainment. <laughs> ben, I appreciate your podcast carrying through 2020. Maybe I'm wrong, but back in March, April, there was a pod where it sounded like you guys were legit concerned about being able to carry on with no soccer games. I've been listening since 2014, the Brazilian World Cup, and appreciate what you bring to the soccer podcasting world. Hmm. On the pitch, I was thrilled for an Arsenal win in the FA Cup. Thanks, Ben. I don't think we're ever going to pack it in, but it was content was going to be difficult. Yeah, I, I we don't. I don't believe we have ever missed a week since oh. we started this podcast. I don't think we've ever not one full week. week. No. Yeah. It's nuts. Our commitment is amazing. Yeah. Um, Eddie, I love the bitterness. Uh, I, I, no, I, I mean this, Eddie, you're dead right to do this. So I, I tweeted, what moved you? Uh, what made you happy or sad? What gave you joy? Give us your 2020 in football. River losing the Copa Libertadores brought me so much joy. <laughs> um, Kevin M. Brown with a good one. This is the penultimate one. Uh, the men's league, my team and I have played in since 2011, almost a decade stopped. Understanding some men's leagues have started back, we decided we have decided not to. The weekly social outlet was more than soccer. It was a night for the boys to decompress, have a few pops, have a laugh about our wives, kids, family, and life. Looking forward to playing in 2021. Fingers crossed I still have my two left feet. That is a big thing. Connectivity. Um, there was an article about how men need to really, have really struggled during the lockdown. And, and uh, Kevin, a decade, a, being in a league for a decade, I've never even done that. Um, leagues come, leagues go. To lose one after a decade, man, I totally feel that one. Yeah. Um, and finally, teeners. My mom passed away this year. The one thing that was sure to pull me out of my grief fueled haze was watching soccer. As a Liverpool fan for twenty years, I always heard about the glory days, but never got to live them. Oh, what a year this has been! When I was down, oh, excuse me for a second. When I was down really down, I'd rewatch the Liverpool-Barcelona Champions League game where Liverpool overcame being 3-0 down in the tie at Anfield. While I much prefer fans in the stadiums, being able to watch soccer during this long year brought some normalcy rhythm and with Liverpool, pure joy back into my life on a weekly basis. Thank you so much for continuing to do the podcast. Um, While soccer was sop, I don't think you realise what hope and laughter you returned to people who needed it. And screw the people who hate it when you two fight. That's what brothers do. Thank you very much. Teeners. And thank you very much for everyone's submissions. I didn't get to all of them, obviously, but um, they were really, really good. The Instagram people this time, Andrew, came up big. That's great to hear. And I think um, I like that you that you end on that because I did want to say I don't have anything like sappy prepared, any kind of end of year speech or, or message necessarily. But I did want to to thank um, all of the people who who listen to this podcast because I I know we've said this before and I continue to feel it. Um, that there is just like a communal feel around this show. And, you know, I, you know, I know we joke, but I do, I see your messages and, and JJ reads your messages. And I, I do, there are so many people 
uh, who listen to this podcast that I, I've never met, but I feel like I know. Yeah. And uh, it, it just makes the whole experience so much, so, so enjoyable. Um, and, you know, I know that it, one of the the messages that you just read, the guy said he, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do this. Uh, I, for what it's worth, I always felt through the the quarantine that we would, we would continue to do the podcast. I knew that mm-hmm. we, you know, we'd be able to come up um, with content, but what I did not know was whether or not anyone would listen to it without there being games. And, um, you know, not to dig into numbers. I don't know if anybody wants to hear that, but uh, I can tell you that that you guys did continue to, and I'm I'm so grateful of that. That I, you know, that there is just this kind of like, sort of like this this unspoken friendship that like we all have around this game mm-hmm. and around this podcast, and uh, it's it's so enjoyable. And it's been it's even in this really really difficult year, uh, this podcast. At, at various points throughout has proven to at, at times be an oasis uh, from all the chaos. And so I hope that, that you guys at times have felt that as well. If we can do anything to, to help, to bring a smile to you, something, um, then um, I'm, I'm just happy to, to hear that and to know that. And so I'm, I'm just so appreciative, truly, like genuinely of, of the people that listen to this podcast and to you, JJ, this has been, this has continued to be just so fun. And, uh, and and I know people like the, the one guy there references you and I bickering and arguing and like for anyone who is ever not sure of, you know, whether or not like, you know, are these guys actually friends or were they just like put together by some corporation to, to do a show together? Like, I swear we are like, I don't know who needs to hear it, but like, JJ, you are a, as good a friend as, as I know. I mean, you are like, it's, it's as genuine and real a relationship as as I hope it, it sounds uh, on this show. And so if anyone, if we're arguing and anyone ever questions that, just know like that is that we, it's real, man. It's, it's absolutely real. And uh, I love you, brother. It's been quite a year and uh, I look forward to an even better one next year. Oh, Andrew, you've, you've overwhelmed me. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I love you too, man. And, and, and the love is genuine. And uh, if we weren't doing this, you know, for ESPN, we'd be doing it anyway, and we'd be hanging out together. You're one of the best people I've ever met, and I would just like don't want to go inside baseball too much, but you know, there's been times when during this year it's been difficult uh, because we've not been in the same studio, not in the same space. It's been challenging, and Andrew has met every single challenge with a level of professionalism above and beyond, guys. He's he is supremely talented as both a podcast broadcaster and and, and a producer. And we wouldn't have it without him. If it was left to me, this podcast would be recorded down two bean tins with wire and it would be edited with sellotape and spider's webs. That's how good Andrew is. Uh, I love you, man. I love everyone out there as well. Even if on Twitter, I'm a bit harsh with you. Um, I, when I am harsh with you on Twitter over an opinion or over you're harsh with me over my opinion, imagine we're at a bar having a few beers. That's how it is. It's definitely not any uh, anything personal. And um, yeah, man, I, I I look forward to 2021 with, with trepidation, but um, I, I want to thank everyone who's listened because if you think that we raised you up, and many of you have said that we have, if we helped you out during this difficult year, you have no idea how much you have helped us out. You raise me up so I can stand and I rise up. And there is a...
<laughs> and on that note yeah well this was fun man we'll be back next week of course uh as the fixtures continue to come fast and furious maybe an update on where brian reynolds will be headed as well hey good stuff happy new year everybody stay safe for real be safe out there celebrate however you most safely and most funly can jj to you i say check you later fun boy bye bye 2020 peace out <laughs>